Well, we want to welcome you to the Reformed Informants. This is a podcast devoted to biblical exposition, systematic theology, and practical application for the good of the church. I'm Lance Burroughs, along with TJ Darty, and we are the Reformed Informants. Man, I, right before we hit record on this episode, we've got TJ making jokes across uh uh, across the way over in Kentucky, man. So if you're watching this on YouTube, I'm literally crying and my face is beat red at the moment. <laughs> well, it's been it's been a like super tense like two and a half, three months, right, for everybody. And sometimes you just you just kind of get into one of those laughing fits, and that's just what that's just what happened. We were just having it was just good for the soul, just just having a little fun uh, before we hit record. So yeah, that was man, that was good. It's today's June first. It's, it's uh. The week after Memorial Day, so it was, it was funny. We we typically record on Mondays and release the following Monday, but with Memorial Day coming uh, last week, we just we we needed a break. We took a day off, and we'd just been dying to get back in. And it, it, you could tell that we haven't we haven't been together for a couple of weeks. It was it was it was a grand old time when we hit when we hit uh, hit record there. Yeah, man, I had to get my serious game face on as soon as yeah. I hit record. Yeah, um, as we work our way into uh, this episode. Real quick before we get going, TJ, what's going on um, in Paris uh, with the Philippian study? You're taking a break, um, I yeah. guess is the deal. Yeah, so we, we're walking verse by verse through Philippians. I don't know. We've been doing it for six weeks. We're on like verse two. Um, not, not quite. We, we finished verse 11 yesterday, but uh, yeah, we're going to take a break for a week and and just kind of address the craziness. And hopefully uh, when we collect our thoughts, uh, we can devote an episode of that here as well. Uh, responding to all the things around us. We, we're not insensitive to that. We're not skipping it. We're not ignoring it. But uh, uh, same thing in the church. I, I didn't immediately respond to it, but since, hey, there, there's probably a time when things need to be said. And so uh, that's the plan for this coming Sunday to, to kind of think through those things. And uh, just because, man, this is this is a unique time. It's a, it's a historic time in our nation. And um, how the church thinks and responds to that is really important. Right. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, even... Um, from the pulpit and the Reformed Informants podcast, we can't address every issue in the culture, but um, with what we've seen with COVID, we obviously address those things on the podcast. And then even with uh, cops, um, rioting, looting, um, injustice, things of that nature, um, we, we felt like we wanted to address it, um, but we wanted to give some time uh, to gather and collect our thoughts, spend a good amount of time putting together an episode guide, um, and then trying to respond, uh, from the objective word of God. So we're going to, we're going to do that, do that next week. But, uh, before we get to that episode, we're going to begin our next, uh, series in our systematic theology that we're building. And we're going to move into Christology. Uh, now just a fair warning before I kick it back to TJ to tell uh, tell our listeners why we're in Christology at this point or why we're moving in this direction. This could be an entire summertime series for season two of the Reformed Informants. A lot of, uh, a lot of things to say about Jesus Christ, and um, it, it may take us a few episodes to get through that. Yeah, um, you know, it's funny, we say Christology, 
a good friend of mine, I'm not going to disclose his name just to protect him, but a good friend of mine, when he was in seminary, the very first time he heard that word Christology, he thought it had something to do with like crystals. He he didn't know know what it was. Um, And so Christology, um, as we're going to discover the study of Christ, uh, it falls in a a line of systematic thinking. And so um, as we're going to discuss today, the uh, title of our episode um, is that Christology is the grand distinction of Christianity. It's, this is what sets Christianity apart. So we're really, that's why Lance, that's why you said, hey, this could take an entire summer to walk through. There's so much depth. There's so many topics uh, to consider. But uh, you don't just immediately, even though it's the central doctrine of Christianity, we don't immediately start there uh, in building our system. And so we've we've taken a little bit of time off from the system building itself to address some of those issues. So just by way of reminder, uh, we are building a system uh, of thought. And we started all the way back uh, last, when was that? May? A year ago? One year ago. Yeah. So when we first started this, we began with the discussion uh, on bibliology, the study of the Bible. So we we began there. That became the starting point for us to be able to build. That's how we base our, how we build our systematics, how we uh, form doctrine. Uh, then we talked about theology proper. We talked about the the being and the attributes of God. We talked about the Trinity, uh, the work of God and creation and providence, the decrees of God. So we we've dealt with God the Father uh, first. Then we began. Uh, looking at anthropology. So we got into the doctrine of man and we considered who man is, what the Bible says about man, image of God, and related to that homardiology, the study of sin and what sin has done to man. And so that's kind of where we left off, right? Like we've gotten to the point where we've seen, um, based on the Bible, which is where we started, we've seen a perfect triune, holy God who has decreed uh, in his creation what shall come to pass. He has providentially ensured those things. He created a good and perfect world. Uh, that world included humanity with the image of God. There was there was harmony between God and man. And by the way, we're just walking through a gospel presentation and doing this, uh, as you've pointed out. Um but there's harmony, there's goodness in his creation. Man is man is uh, made in God's image, the crown jewel of creation. But with Genesis 3, we see the entrance to, of sin into the world. And so because of this sin, there's now a separation that a holy God has no fellowship, has no relationship uh, with a sinful uh, man. And so sin, as we've discussed, is that rebellion. It's that that hatred, that distinction that pulls us away from God. So we're no longer holy. We no longer have access to a holy and perfect God. And so that's why in doing it this way and setting up Christology this way, by the time we get here now, the, the purpose, the work, the person of Christ all comes into perfect focus as we consider um, why he came to earth when he did and all the things surrounding it. What, what would you add to that, Lance? Not much I can add, man. That that was that was gold right there. If you're listening, rewind, listen to that again. Um, I, I would say that <clears throat> in building our systematic, that we're not taking isolated texts only. We're we're using all of Scripture to build. So whether it's bibliology, theology proper, um, Christology here, or even eschatology, the end times that we'll talk about here in a couple years, um, <laughs> it, it's it's a comprehensive, exhaustive look at all of Scripture to build this systematic. So even as we look at uh, certain nuances of Christology, if if you take one nuance of Christology and, and you don't place it into the rest of the pie, then you've got a 
faulty, heretical, unbiblical view of Jesus. So you have to take mm-hmm. every single component beginning from Genesis to Revelation to develop a, a proper Christology. Yeah, that's that's a really good reminder. And I think, too, when we've looked before at the the Trinity, we've looked at the the doctrine of God, theology proper, God the Father, and we've looked at anthropology, the doctrine of man. If you don't have those in place already, by the time you get to Christ, you don't have the categories to develop the fully divine, fully human being that, that Christ is. And so so those categories are in place. We we kind of we're building this theology in a particular order. And so maybe you're new to the podcast. We're in season two. We've been doing this for a long time, it seems like. Uh, we've got tons of quality episodes uh, that have been built up and kind of archived in the past dealing with with systematic in particular. So maybe you're new and you're thinking, hey, I don't want to go back and listen to 50 episodes. Just go back and listen to those particular doctrines. So start with bibliology, work your way through and hit those high points. Uh, we, we take breaks. We do biblical exegesis. We deal with cultural application, all those types of things along the way. But if you hit those high points, you'll see kind of the, the uh, foundation that's been established as we get to Christology, and I think that's really important. So, uh, Lance, why? How in the world are we making the claim? Why are we making the statement that this is the grand distinction of Christianity? Why is there so much prominence and focus placed on this particular doctrine? How are we going to spend the whole summer talking about one thing? Well, this is the central theme of Scripture. This is the central person of Scripture. I, I think that God's Word from Genesis to Revelation, recognizes that Christ is uh, the the apex. He is the, the, the Mount Everest, I guess, uh, that you could say. And not only does Scripture go that route, uh, placing Jesus as uh, preeminent, as supreme, but even if you look throughout church history, you will recognize that Christians have recognized mm-hmm. that Jesus Christ himself is center. Yeah, who, who are you thinking of uh, historically, theologians? I mean, we've got stacks. I'm looking at your incredible bookshelf, by the way. Nice nice move to turn turn the camera this week so I can see that, that glorious display back there. You've got tons of systems. I've got tons of systems. We've read through. I know you're pulling resources right now since you're the guy building these episode guides for us because I'm slacking all the time. Uh, but but who, you, who do you have in mind? Yeah, you've really been slacking being a senior pastor. Well... <laughs> Yeah, somebody's got somebody's got to carry the pod, and I appreciate yeah. you doing that. But um, yeah, well, I, I was looking through uh, William Cunningham. He has a two-volume uh, set on uh, history of the church, historical theology, and he says the manifestation of the Son of God in the flesh, and the completion of the series of God's supernatural revelations to men through the instrumentality of His immediate followers form the crown and center of the whole scheme of God's dealing with mankind. Cunningham is arguing here that Christ is the crown and center of the whole scheme of God's dealings with people. So he goes on to say, with a reference with a reference rather to which everything else, whether prior or posterior to that great era, ought to be contemplated. So Cunningham is basically saying in his basically saying in his historical theology that it is it is Christ that is elevated it is Christ that mm. is the crown it is Christ that is supreme in God's dealing with mankind. Mm. 
That's man, that's so good. Um, he's not the only one. William Cunningham's not the only, or Cunning Cunningham Cunningham is not the only one. Uh, A. A. Hodge, which you were educating me on earlier, that's Archibald Alexander Hodge, the son of Charles Hodge, named after Archibald Alexander. <laughs> right? Okay, that can be confusing, but A. A. Hodge, uh, in his lectures on doctrine, he said this about about the doctrine of Christology. He says it is the grand distinction of Christianity. By the way, that's how we got our episode title. We pulled that from A.A. Hodge. It is the grand distinction of Christianity that all its doctrines and all its forces center in the person of its founder and teacher. That, of course, would be Christ. He says, in the case of Christianity, the entire system from foundation to superstructure Everything in between rests upon and derives its life from the person of its founder. In other words, if you take Christ away, you take Christianity away. He is central. He is the pillar. He is the founder. He is everything when it comes to understanding what Christianity is. What does it mean to be a Christian? It's all focused on Christ. Yeah. A. Hey, Hodge, <laughs> Alexander Archibald, Charles Hodge, all those guys. B.B. Um, Warfield is in the mix there. J. Gresham Machen. Those are all Princetonian theologians. Like if you look back in the 19th century. Um, Which we would affirm, we would affirm the Princeton theology of the 19th century. That's oh, yeah. very, very much, even though we may have some degrees of variation in tiny places, those men have left a legacy with, with which we would we would hold to, we would adhere to. Uh, many of the Reformed Baptists of the 19th century, uh, guys like uh, J- James Pettigrew Boyce had Princeton Princeton education, Princeton background. So um, Thomas Watson, uh, Puritan in his Body of Divinity, he wrote this, just a very simple statement, but he says, Jesus Christ is the sum and the quintessence of the gospel. That's, that's who he is. He is the sum of the gospel. And so when you consider Christology, when you think about the subject matter of Christ, we are dealing with the whole gospel, the whole foundation of Christianity. Yeah. Uh, mentioning, uh, hopping back to Princetonian theologians, B.B. Uh, Warfield, in his uh, essay titled The Essence of Christianity, uh, he, he's basically uh, put together a work um, that basically draws from a few different people and their uh, erroneous views of the central message of Christianity. Um, I actually have, it's an eight-volume set. Warfield has an eight-volume set, I think. This is volume three from Christology and Criticism. Uh, Again, the title of the the essay is The Essence of Christianity, but he quotes from a philosopher, a 19th century uh, philosopher, Josiah Royce. Josiah Royce gives an objective view of Christianity in terms of the early church, the first few centuries of the church. And Josiah Royce says the early church found, or at least felt, that it could not live at all without thus interpreting the person and work of Christ. So this philosopher, again, who has, he has no stake in Christianity. So he's, he, he's not Christian. He, right. He's he, just he, observing. Yeah, he's, he's making an observation of the Christian faith from the centuries past, and he says, look, the early church found that it was absolutely imperative to get down into the tiny nuances and caveats of Jesus' life. 
those particulars, mm. those details absolutely mattered to the early church, and, and they matter to us in 2020. At the mm, end, yeah, at, at the end of that, uh, at the end of that essay, Warfield goes on to write, "The redeemed in the blood of Christ, after all is said, are people apart. Call them Christians or call them what you please." They are of a specifically different religion from those who know from those who know no such experience. It may be within the rights of those who feel no need of such redemption and have never experienced its transforming power to contend that their religion is a better religion than the Christianity of the cross. It is distinctly not within their rights to maintain that it is the same religion as the Christianity of the cross. Warfield is saying here, there is no religion like Christianity of the cross. He's arguing again that the biblical Jesus, the Christian Jesus, is unlike anything else that exists in any religion. Yeah. Gosh, that's so that's so good. That's such a, a good I think that's a, a fairly decent sample there that we could and man, we could have done this. We could have done this a lot more. Um, but for the sake of time, let's let's move on. In addition to these theologians and these historians and others who have observed this, we also would argue that Christology is absolutely that the person and the work of Christ is absolutely central to the message of the gospel, right? Like we've said this before in terms of systematic theology, we're building a gospel, we're building a gospel presentation, we're building an understanding of the gospel. You can't do systematic theology without the gospel. Well, you certainly do not have a gospel without Christ. Second uh, John, the book of Second John, verses seven to nine says, "For many deceivers have gone out into the world; those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God, and the one who abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. In other words." There is no fellowship with God apart from Christ, right? John 14, 6, very familiar verse. I'm the way, the truth, the life. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through me. Christ is at the center of the gospel message. Yeah, that second John scripture that you read often gets overlooked. Second and third John do just because of the sheer size of, the, of those letters, really just a dozen verses each. But the point that he's making, and just to piggyback off of you, if you don't believe in the correct teaching, that's what that word uh, doctrine, other translations, it'll say the doctrine of Christ or the teaching of Christ. If you don't believe in the correct teaching of Jesus Christ found in the scriptures alone, you do not have God. Yeah, You don't have God. You cannot be right with God if you are not right with the correct biblical Jesus. Little bonus content here, Lance. This is not on our guide, but I I just want to share off this script? with you. I'm going off script. You may not know this about me, but early on in ministry, one of the very first sermons I ever preached, I think it was the second sermon I ever preached, was on the was from the book of Second John. And I titled my sermon, I still remember it, called Walking in the Truth. And one of my arguments in that sermon was that you have to know the truth, you have to understand and know right doctrine in order to walk and live it out. And that's what John argues here. You can't walk and live and be a person who follows Christ unless you know the true Christ. And so as we study Christology, it is 
absolutely imperative that we know who Jesus is and that we know and understand what the Bible says about who he is and what he's done. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna unpack all of those things because this if you get this wrong, you get everything wrong. And so this becomes then that that central pillar to the Christian faith. Yeah, and that leads us into the next point here. If you get Jesus wrong, if you do not believe in a biblical Jesus, you will die in your sins. You will be punished for your sins. Remember, Jesus came in the world to seek and save that which was lost. He came to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came in this world to save sinners, but it has to be this Jesus that you believe in. And if you don't believe in this Jesus, you will die in your sins. John chapter 8, verse 24 says, and this is Jesus speaking, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's coming directly from Jesus. Jesus says, you have to believe in me. And if you do not believe in me, you will die in your sins. Gosh. Yeah. And that's that's why then it becomes so imperative for us as we we unpack theology, we discuss theology. Everything is important. We are never dismissive. I mean, if you're if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you know this by now that we tend to be somewhat exhaustive and we really want to examine the scriptures and give ample evidence and and all of those things, but especially on subject matter as as critical and really as eternity dependent as this. If we get this wrong, if we misunderstand Christ, if we misunderstand uh, who he is, we don't know the true biblical Jesus, then we have no hope for salvation because this is uh, this is where life is found. This is where the gospel is applied. And so uh, for that reason, we have to be so um, careful to not distort who the biblical Jesus is. And so I think that naturally lends us into maybe the next section to discuss and at least kind of uh, preview probably would be the best way of saying this. I think you said when we were uh, discussing earlier, this is almost like, right, we're like in the bullpen kind of warming up. We're doing some layup drills. We're really just kind of getting a sample for what's to come in future episodes. Um, but let's talk a little bit about heretical views. So what, where would you take us as we start to discuss distortions of Christ and how we might uh, address those in episodes to come. Yeah, in, in preparation uh, for this episode, I, I made a list of probably a dozen different heretical views um, and also placed on there some liberal theologians and some people that were very influential in the 18th and 19th centuries that essentially attacked the scriptures therefore attack Jesus Christ. Um, so we're going to walk through that list here uh, uh, quickly. But but I was also looking through Paul Washer's book, uh, The Gospel's Power and Message. And here's what Paul Washer says about getting Jesus right. Washer says, quote, Throughout the history of the church, there have been many heresies regarding the exact relationship between the divine and human natures and the person of Jesus Christ. Some of these false teachings have come from heretics who sought to deny either Christ's deity or his humanity. However, other erroneous teachings have also come from sincere Christians who simply took it upon themselves to explain the matter and leave no room for mystery. Therefore, 
we must endeavor to speak and write with caution. By the way, I love Paul Washer. Yeah, that's. I was excited when I saw that quote, and I, I didn't want to take it from you since you were the one that that put that on there. Um, but I wholeheartedly uh, affirm everything he just said. And part of my studies in systematic theology for for my degree um, has been diving into these heresies, and 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 those things are necessary. They're good. I, I hope that we're able to do that in episodes to come to actually unpack them and see what's happening. But what's what's so remarkable to me is I've studied them and. Paul Washer nailed it with that quote. He said, some of these things have come from those who are sincere Christians. These are men who are attempting to, not to undermine the faith, they are attempting to understand what the Bible says. Uh, with the best intentions, they, they desire to know the truth, and they have missed the mark because they have they have just simply misunderstood or they have left no room for mystery, as Paul Washer said. And so it's so easy to do. And a small distortion of the biblical truth um, can come out in a wild, wild conclusion. And so um, this is why I hope down the road we can look at confessions of faith and we can look at the creeds and um, those documents and the the work of our, our forefathers in, in the Christian faith who have sought to bring clarity and um, and, and direct understanding of what the Bible teaches on these subjects. So uh, even though this is not an exhaustive list, and even though we're going to come come back and hopefully address these in, in individual episodes, Lance, let, let's just kind of at least mention some of these heresies and, and maybe the danger uh, of them as a preview to say this is why this stuff is so important. Um, I, I'll kick it off here. Uh, the, the first one and one of the most prevalent ones that we see addressed in the New Testament, I'm thinking the book of Colossians, uh, the book of 1 John has reference to this. There, I know there are others that allude to this as well, but the heresy of docetism, and that comes from that Greek word dakeo, which means to seem or to appear. And so docetism taught that Jesus was a spirit being only. He only appeared to have humanity. And so again, all of these things come in understanding how Jesus was fully God and fully man. And we'll, we'll of course, uh, deal with that down the road. But the docetists taught that Jesus was fully God, but he just appeared to be man. He, he gave the appearance. It was almost like a deception that nobody understood. He wasn't really man. Uh, we will deal with the major implications and problems with that down the road. But, but that is a, maybe a mystical type of of um, heresy that we wouldn't see as prevalent in 21st century Western world America, but very, very uh, prevalent, uh, certainly in the first century, but even in other parts of the world, Eastern mystic religion and things of that sort. So we need to be aware that that thinking is out there and that thinking, as we're going to deduce later, is incorrect. Yeah, to add to uh, docetism, you could throw Gnosticism into the mix as well. That was all the rage uh, there towards the end of the first century, uh, but that was e essentially saying the saying the same thing that uh, there, there's no way that uh, that Jesus had a, a body because the body is evil and and how can God be evil? So uh, you see with Docetism and Gnosticism, there, there's already a tampering with Jesus, the physicality of him, um, mm -hmm. which is again. First John chapter one verses one through four, he's talking about seeing and touching and handling. You know, he's exposing uh, th th this truth that 
you know, Jesus, he, he was physical. He was a physical right. reality. Yeah, that's why John is so emphatic on those things, these things which we have seen, the one whom we heard. That's why John gives the account, right, of Thomas touching the hands, because that was a, a major issue. And that that goes all the way back. You, you, you nailed it already, Lance. You talked about the fact that the body was evil, but that goes back to a worldview, a dualistic worldview, which taught that some things were good, those things were God, everything else was evil, those things are anti-God, uh, which is a complete distortion of that biblical narrative, the biblical creation, which says that in his creation, all things were good, including those material things. And so you see just the way in which all of theology plays into this, uh, because humanity, when we this is why we did anthropology before, humanity in and of itself is a good thing. God looked at his creation and said, this is very good. Man is a good thing. It's We don't need to protect Jesus from being man. Uh, right. We're going to see how important that is uh, down the road. Um, and what, what else? What other what other heresies come to mind? Uh, another one would be Ebionism. Ebionism, it denied the incarnation of Jesus Christ, denied the incarnation. Uh, it basically argued that, look, Jesus... He, he, he was a man that had the presence of God. It, it, it basically rejects the idea of God, uh, the Son, the second member of the Trinity, becoming a human. It's a denying the virgin birth and, and those realities. It's saying, look, you know, Jesus was a guy. He happened to have the presence of God upon him, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that, again, that's a far cry from what you find uh, in the Old Testament, I would even argue, but definitely what you find in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, related to that, you have Arianism. Uh, this goes all the way back to the early early creeds. We're gonna we'll, we'll unpack that in a future episode, I'm sure. Uh, we had Arius versus Athanasius, and you had this council that met, but Arius thought he was understanding scripture, in particular uh, Colossians chapter 1, when it says that he was the firstborn, that Jesus was the firstborn of all creation. And so Arianism denied the full eternal deity of the Son, uh, which said that Jesus was the first and the greatest created being. Um, Now, we will, of course, come back and talk about the implications of that and what that looks like. There is nobody that I know, at least nobody that I've seen on Twitter or in the pastor sphere or whatever, who's running around saying I'm an Arian, right? Like nobody's running around saying that, but there is a teaching out there uh, that would suggest based on, and we've, we've talked about this a little bit with the prosperity gospel, but there's, there's teaching out there that underneath the whole thing suggests that Jesus became God. Uh, and this is part of the, part of the root of that, which says that he is not eternally uh, part of the divine Godhead. And so this is, yeah, no, like I said, nobody's running around claiming that Arius is their teacher, uh, but this type of stuff, heresies resurface uh, through through the centuries. And so uh, Arianism is the most prominent, uh, most well-known heresy uh, to church historians because it was uh, played out on such a big scale. Um, but it's very, very dangerous, but it's based on Colossians 1. And so it's not, again, this is not just guys pulling things out of left field. Uh, this is a misunderstanding of a biblical text that has led to a distortion of who Christ is. Yeah, that's good. And that that basically sparked Athanasius Creed, uh, the uh, Nicene Creed, mm-hmm. um, Constantinople, all all of those there around the the third and fourth century. Man, it's small nuanced errors like that is when the church came together and then put together those right. really foundational uh, statements uh, about uh, the person of, of Jesus Christ. 
Uh, another uh, heretical view of Jesus uh, that has cycled through uh, the centuries is Sabellianism, also known as modalism. This is basically saying that when God is God the Father, He's God the Father. But God the mm-hmm. Father has to transform or morph into God the Son. So when He becomes God the Son, at that point in time, He's not God the Father. So this this idea is God is working in different modes. He, he's not one essence in three persons, but he, he is one essence that's moving around at different times to, I guess you could say, different locations, uh, mm-hmm. as sort of an, an illustrative way to say it. Right. Yeah. The uh, maybe the best uh, illustration that I heard for this uh, when I was in seminary was that it's like Clark Kent going into the phone booth and coming out as Superman. <laughs> right. It's like, hey, God the Father's up in heaven on the throne, and then he's like, oh, got to get down to earth and be Christ for a little bit, and then I got to descend like the Holy Spirit. And so, yeah, it's it's this idea that that the deity of Christ is wrapped up in who God is, but the these per, the personhood of Christ um, is not distinct from the other uh, persons of the Godhead. And, and listen, this, this heresy is wildly prominent in the church. Almost exclusively. I hear it all the time in these analogies, right? Who, who, how do we understand the Trinity? Well, God is like water in three forms, right? Like he's like froze, like ice, water, uh, water, liquid, and gas. Like, no, that's, that's modalism. That's, that's an, an ancient heresy that's come out in a new analogy or, you know, God is uh, a father and a son and a brother, you know, kind of that relational thing. Like that's actually modalism. And so, uh, this, this thought very, very dangerous and very easy to, to slip into, uh, theology and thinking without, uh, without catching it. Um, Nestorianism. I know I skipped one, Lance. I'm going to let you come back and talk about that one. But Nestorianism is another one that that I wanted to highlight. Where uh, this one deals with the the distinct natures of Christ, right? Like Jesus has a divine person and a human person, and um, this teaches Nestorianism kind of kept those things separate. Said that those are two entities that, that he has a divine nature and a human nature, but they were separate, and so they worked together. And he kind of had uh, both of them. Um, at the same time, but not they weren't blended in the hypostatic union, as we'll talk about later. So uh, Nestorianism is just a misunderstanding of the person of Christ and how he's how he could be fully divine and fully man at the same time. Uh, kept those things separate, and that's that's going to be a problem as we'll see down the road as well. Sure, yeah, uh, Apollinarianism it basically had it basically it's very Gnostic esque in the sense that uh, Jesus did not have a true human nature, um, that, that he was, uh, it's been said that Jesus was a phantom, according to Apollinarianism. Uh, Eutychianism is a denial of uh, Christ's two distinct natures, but it advocates that these two natures had kind of melded and come together to form a third nature. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this... The way in which Jesus lived um, was beyond almost the realm of humanity and right. beyond the realm of deity and into this this third 
uh, kind of third nature, this third function. It was like a higher plane, uh, I guess you could say. And that's clearly not taught in scripture. Right. I, I would I would say at this point, as we're running into these, at this point, I think we're seeing exactly what Paul Washer was talking about in that quote, right? Like not leaving room for mystery. We're going to talk later about that that union between God or Jesus being fully God and fully man. Say, that's that's just how it is. He is 100% God. He's 100% man. That's a mystery to us. It's a it's a tremendous miracle. We don't quite fully logically wrap our heads around that. But instead of trying to explain it away, fall into one of these heretical categories, we need to accept what the biblical uh, witness tells us. And, uh, and so I think that that's really important. A couple of other things that, that come to mind uh, when we deal with misunderstandings or misappropriations of Christ— um, the canonic, the canonic theory, kenosis, uh, that comes from Philippians chapter two. Whenever um, in that great canonic hymn, we are told that Jesus emptied himself, taken on the form of flesh, taken on the form of human uh, humanity, came came to the earth in his in flesh. It says that he emptied himself, and so the that word kenosis means empty. And so this canonic theory says that that Jesus gave up those divine attributes, right? Like he was fully divine, but he gave them up and he came to earth to be fully man. And even in his humanity, even though he had access to being fully God, he had divulged, he had given that up. He'd emptied himself of them. So um, when he was man, he no longer had that divine attribute because he had emptied himself. So again, a misunderstanding of a biblical text I'm really excited because I'm, you know, a couple of months away from unpacking that that rich uh, theological treasure chest in Philippians chapter two, um, walking through that with my church family. But but really, really, really important and really easy to misunderstand that text and lead to that lead to that heresy. Yeah, that's good. Um, as we end this list, let's talk about a few uh, liberal theologians that have uh, found their ways. Um, they have found their way into almost every systematic. If you go pick a systematic up off of the shelf, you're going to come across uh, uh, these guys because their influence and their thought has been pervasive in their time and, and even now. Um, Rudolf Boltmann was a German liberal theologian in the 20th century. Here's what he said. I, in, I do indeed think that we can know now know almost nothing concerning the life and personality of Jesus, since the early Christian sources show no interest in either and are often legendary. So he argues that early Christian sources, um, uh, namely Scripture, um, th those sources are legendary, and that those sources th they show no interest in uh, Christianity, Christ, or, or the gospel. Uh, John Hick, a British philosopher in the 20th century, uh, wrote a book entitled The Myth of God Incarnate. He argues because divinity and humanity um, uh, are mutually exclusive, that they cannot exist with one another. So he's basically saying, look, th this, this doesn't make sense. Divinity and humanity are mutually exclusive. There is no way that this can be possible in the person of Jesus Christ. Yeah, so he's using his his grid for understanding... Christology then becomes human reason and not scripture, right? So he's he's now saying those can't coexist. And and a lot of this uh, liberal theologian 
uh, work, especially those that happen in the in the German world. Uh, a lot of that stems from the work of a guy that by the name of Fre- uh, Frederick Schleiermacher. And if you've ever uh, if you've never read him, please don't because it is just brutal. Um, it's just so hard to read that guy. Um, but Schleiermacher was very very influential. Uh, taking taking the philosophy of Immanuel Kant, he now reshapes and redevelops systematic theology and has left a trail of theologians who have adopted his work. And Schleiermacher denies, essentially at the, at the heart of his uh, systematic, he denies the miraculous. And so he dismisses all of the miracles, anything in, in, in uh, the biblical record that suggests anything outside of um, natural occurrences. He dismisses that, says that that's uh, either legend or, or uh, fake or whatever else. And so he's obviously going to have a very low view of Christ. He denies the Trinity. And, and why would we bring him up? Only to show that there is a world of pseudo-Christians that seem or claim to hold the Bible in some regard, that claim to be Christians claim to be trying to understand this, but that would completely miss the mark in terms of what the Bible says. And so it's just so imperative for us to develop and understand and take our time, uh, not assuming anything right with our language. Our our words are going to be really, really intentional, just like we did with that episode on the Trinity, when we were very uh, careful in how we phrased and stated certain things. Uh, it's it, it's necessary to do that, and I think that this has been uh, this crash course in heresies has been informative, and for me, it's just been a good reminder of just how easy it is for for someone to misunderstand. Um, and again, I don't think our local churches today, I don't think anybody would like stand up and like advocate, yeah, like I'm I'm pro heresy on these things. <laughs> but if we don't, Flyer have- <laughs> right? Like I don't I don't think I mean I. I, I know I'm new here, but I, I don't think that that's happening behind my back without me knowing. Like, I don't think there's a small group meeting on Thursday nights to read Schleiermacher. Um, but I, guess, I mean, I, I guess we'll find out when you get to Philippians 2 and the canonic theory. We'll see what's going <laughs> that's on. That's right. We'll see. We'll see if I get some people storm out. Um, but but in all seriousness, I think that a lot of nobody's nobody's openly advocating for that. But there are misunderstandings that are so natural and so easy to happen and they can creep in. And so we want to be careful and articulate and learn to identify what we just did uh, in walking through and developing our system and our understanding of Christ. We want to be able to identify not only uh, what those heresies are, but where they come from and what other implications they might have. So uh, I think that's been really, really helpful for us in doing that. So Lance, on the time we have left, where else, what else do we need to talk about kind of in this preview overview uh, episode on, on the subject of Christology? Yeah, that, that brings us up to the third point of our episode. Um, We've ultimately been building to this point. If we want to know who Jesus is and we're advocating that he is the savior of the world, we need to understand the details and nuances of this Jesus by the only standard that we have, and, and, and that would be the Holy Scripture. That would be all of the Old Testament, all of the New Testament. That would be the Word of God. In fact, all of Scripture, according to Revelation 19, verse 10, all of Scripture centers around Christ. Now, Revelation 19, uh, verse 10, th- this is John 
writing, John actually is in, in the scene here. John says, I fell at his feet to worship him. Basically, he was having a, an interaction uh, with an angel. So John, which he shouldn't have done, he, he fell down at the feet of uh, this angel and began to worship the angel. So the angel responds to John and says, do not do that. I am a fellow slave of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. And then the, the angel says, worship God. And then he goes on to say, for the testimony of Jesus, again, this is the angel speaking, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Uh, you could argue that that verse basically sums up God's revelation in Scripture. It's all centralized around Jesus Christ. And I know at times when we see that word prophecy, immediately in our head we think of future events or foretelling. But there's also a huge component to that word prophecy that means just proclamation of God's word. So mm -hmm. the angel is saying, look, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of God's word proclaimed. Yeah. Gosh, you explained that so well. That's that's really good. Um, I mean, that's what the book of Revelation is, right? Revelation 1-1, this is the revelation of mm. Jesus Christ. It's the unveiling. It's the unfolding. And, the, and that's what the book of Revelation does, is it shows us who Christ is, and it points us ultimately to him. And and. You could you could also develop that a little bit further and speak about how all Scripture proclaims Christ. Uh, one of that magnificent passages, one of the most significant ones in all of the New Testament, First Corinthians fifteen. Uh, Paul says, "Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and which you also stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what had, what I also received that Christ." died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and then he appeared to Peter and then to the 12 and then to the 500 and so all of scripture then points to the uh, death burial and resurrection of Christ all of scripture proclaims the excellencies and the goodness and the the greatness of that gospel message uh, Luke chapter 24 right and the road to Emmaus mm. Uh, That's a Jesus, good one. Yeah, Jesus is speaking to these men, and it says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded and explained to them how all the scriptures pointed to him, how he was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Martin Luther, his entire ministry, everywhere he turned in the scriptures, he aimed to find Christ. He's like every, He says everything in the scripture points ultimately to the Son of God. That's that's why, as we study the Scriptures, uh, that's who we will find as we exposit, as we expound. And so everything that we read, everything that we see points to Christ. Um, Lance, when you preach, do you do you always preach the gospel when you preach a sermon from a, from any given text? Yeah, I, again, I don't think necessarily that Christ is in every individual text. I do mm -hmm. think that you can make uh, a case that you can get to Christ and you can get to the cross and you can get to the gospel um, from every text of Scripture. Yeah. Uh, and again, I think that that highlights uh, the, the spirit of prophecy. Revelation uh, 19.10 is that, you know, Jesus may not be in Leviticus 5.3. However, from Leviticus 5.3, you can make your way to 
the good news of Jesus Christ, right. forgiveness of sins, and all of those things. Is that, you, is that what you were asking? Or exactly. Yeah, you were hoping exactly I answered right. that way, maybe? Yeah, that was. I, I lobbed it up, and I was just really hoping you didn't swing and miss. Because, yes, all of Scripture proclaims Christ, but it's not necessarily where we have to parse out every word and try to figure out, okay, is this mean, like, how do we get— No, like the whole—all of Scripture points and points— everything towards uh, the person and the work of Christ. And so whether whether that's the Old Testament sacrificial uh, laws that were uh, types or allusions to Christ, whether it was the sacrifice of, of Abraham, whether it was the law itself that Jesus would fulfill, whether it's the New Testament proclamation of His excellencies, all of those things, no matter where we are in the Scriptures, there is a way that points to Jesus Himself, and that's precisely the point of what we're trying to make there, that all of Scripture proclaims Christ. Yeah, and and Paul, as he writes to Timothy in Second Timothy chapter three, Paul is talking about Christ, but he's talking about their salvation in Christ. Again, Christ is coming to accomplish something. God is detailing this this sovereign plan that He has orchestrated from the before the foundation of the world, and part of that plan is the salvation of sinners. So Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. The Scripture, God's Word, it, the sacred writings— contained in them are the way of salvation. That's why in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, uh, Luke writes, and there is no salvation in no one else. I think this is Peter preaching, but he's recording it. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Christ and Christ alone is the only way of salvation. And he's the only name by which we can be saved. Again, it's not from the heretical Jesuses that we just talked about earlier in this episode, but it is from the biblical Jesus. Yeah, man, that's so good. And we've we've talked so much about what what the how the scriptures always point to Christ. And I think I made this observation in the last episode we did with Josh. But what's so remarkable to me about the scriptures is all of Scripture anticipates the coming of Christ. All of Scripture anticipates it. In the Old Testament, all the prophecies, all the the the, the heightened awareness of, of a Messiah was all pointing to his first coming, that he would come in the flesh, that he would be Emmanuel, God with us. But even after he ascends in Acts chapter 1, after his ascension, now all of Scripture points to his return. And so there's just a longing. All of Scripture points to this return, to the second coming of Christ, and to His eternal reign. Second Thessalonians chapter one speaks of when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, and He's going to come to inflict vengeance on those who don't know God and those who don't obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, and they're going to suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. That is His eternal reign. Like, does that not just get you fired up to think about this marveling at the glory and the splendor of the return of the King? 
Like that is why that's what that's what scripture points to, and that's why we long for that return so that we can marvel and we can worship and we can glorify him. We can see him face to face. I mean, that is ultimately where scripture points us to. There's a hope, there's a a longing for that return. And so um, that's where we build. That's how we determine and establish our foundation for this doctrine. Man, dude, I'm so fired up. I'm ready to get out of the bullpen. I'm ready to get out of two line layups here, man. Actually, I don't think I ever did layups. Yeah, you're you know exactly. Right you know exactly what I did. <laughs> yeah, I know, no, man. Yeah, this has been a good episode. It's again, as we had said earlier in uh, in this episode, that look, we're we're warming up. We're trying to set the stage um, for what we're really going to pursue as an in depth study of Christology really for the next probably two months, uh, at least over the summertime. Um, but I think that leads us uh, into our uh, informants initiative. And since we have quoted from a lot of people, of course, I needed to add one more quote, and I'm going to use that as my initiative here. Um, but I think I've quoted from Lloyd-Jones a lot, by the way, on yeah. season two of the Reformed Informants, man. Yeah. But I've, I've got a quote from Lloyd-Jones again. The doctor. The, the doctor. Yeah, the, the doctor, man. Um he gave a series of lectures over about 12 weeks, so really a three-month series of lectures on uh, uh, Jesus Christ and Christology. And uh, I, I want you to listen to what he says before he... This is from the first lecture before he, before he begins. He, he says, It is not enough to say, I believe in Jesus Christ. The New Testament asks you questions when you say that. It asks, What do you believe about him? Is he man only? Is he God only? Did he really come in the flesh or did he not? What did he do? What is the meaning of his death? The New Testament is concerned about definitions, and there is nothing, I suggest, that is further removed from its teaching than to say, it is all right, so as long as you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it does not, very ma- it does not matter very much what you say in detail. Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, the detail as I am hoping to show you over the next 12 weeks, is all important and absolutely vital. End quote. Man. Okay, so for my initiative, uh, there's a there's a 12-week series of lectures by Lloyd-Jones, and he starts it. <laughs> that was, man, that's so good. The, 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 the details matter, and that's why I think that would probably lend to what I would say for my initiative, and that is that when we study Christology, Yes, the details matter, but we need to pay attention not only to the doctrine that we develop, but the implications that will come from it, Uh, because we're going to see those heresies uh, have significant ramifications toward our salvation. If Jesus isn't fully God, how does the divine wrath get satisfied? If Jesus isn't fully man, then how does he intercede on our behalf? All of the questions in between, all of the the nuances and the subtle details that you just referenced, all those things have implications on the rest of our theology. And so we need to be mindful of that and we need to slow down and be willing to take the time to articulate and to really understand the depth and the truth of this particular doctrine. And I think we're, we're going to be blessed for it. So... Man, that was that was fun. That was fun, and I'm I'm excited. I'm really excited to begin this walk, uh, walking through 
uh, studying Christology together. So if you're not doing so already, make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. You can give us a review there. Go to our YouTube channel. You can be sure to like us on Facebook at Reformed Informants. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at our underscore informants. And you can find access to all of our episodes, links to all our social media platforms, and the new Reformed Informants shop all on our website at www.themajestiesmen.com slash Reformed Informants. Let's go. The Reformed Informant shop. Buy your gear. Buy your gear, people. Take a picture. Put it on social media. We want to see you wearing it. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics of discussion, feel free to email us at reformedinformants at gmail.com.